everyone, it's Jeff from Modern Combat and Survival, and once again, it's time for little old me to take the spotlight as I talk about my favorite topic, survival gear. In fact, in this interview, Buck gets to grill me on every level of gear you need to be prepared with, and as you know, I don't like to follow the herd. So, you're most likely to hear some ideas that go against the common practice of the gurus out there. But... You know I always back up my ideas with common sense, so I'll let you be the judge on how you put together your own plan based on my advice. This is a longer-than-usual podcast because we cover so much material, so without any further ado, let's go ahead and get started with the interview. If bullets were flying, your adrenaline surging, would you hit your target? If the world as you know it crumbled tomorrow, collapsed into chaos, would you know how to survive? If you and those you loved were cornered by a gang, violently attacked, could you protect them? Could you protect them? Could you protect them? Tactical firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. This, this is another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is Modern Combat and Survival. Preppers and survivalists love to make lists of gear. We love to pack bug out bags for every emergency. We love to have a lot of stuff on hand, period. But does your gear follow any sort of plan? Do you understand the different layers of survival gear preparation? And do your gear acquisitions coordinate with each other to make you the best equipped survivor you can be? This isn't merely a theoretical question. The threat of civil unrest, natural disaster, and lately pending economic collapse have a lot of people worried. They're worried about what they'll do if the services and infrastructure they take for granted suddenly aren't there. All it takes is a few days with the lights off or with the grocery stores empty to bring the worst out in your neighbors. So, what are the seven layers of survival gear, and what's the best way to prepare now in all of these levels to develop a comprehensive equipment plan that will back up the knowledge and skills you develop? That is what we're here to find out. Hello, everyone. This is Buck Green, Broadcast Director for Modern Combat and Survival Magazine, with another survival podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and patriot. And joining us today to discuss the seven layers of survival gear is once again President of the International Society of Close Quarter Combatants, Jeff Anderson. Jeff, welcome to the program. Thanks, Buck. Now, Jeff is a 10-year combat veteran and a lifelong martial artist and combative trainer. With his creation of the ISCQC, he's pulled together the top experts on the planet to provide fellow survivalists like you with advanced training in hand-to-hand and weapons combat, tactical firearms training, and urban survival strategies. You can learn more about Jeff and the ISCQC organization at www.iscqc.org. Jeff, I've heard you say that when it comes to survival gear, the epicenter of the equipment you should choose should be your EDC, or what many survivalists refer to as your everyday carry. Why is this equipment so critical, and what advice do you have for choosing what to carry on you every day? Yeah, a lot of people don't really think uh, a lot about their everyday carry. They're more involved with the stuff that they keep at home and in their bug-out bag and things like that. But here's what you have to understand. You may never get to your home. So you can have all the MREs and the ammo and everything else that you want, but you may never get to your home if an instant no-warning disaster ever rears its ugly head. In fact, you might not even make it to your car. 
So that's why it's so critical that you focus in on equipment first that you're going to carry around with you every day because that might be the only thing that you have that your that your life depends on. So with that in mind, one of the things you consider gear-wise is you should have gear that has like an everyday use to it. I mean, you don't want to carry around a bunch of stuff that you're just never possibly ever going to use. That's just kind of a waste. But you might find that a lot of your equipment has a use during the day naturally in just the, the tasks that you you, know, you take part in. So for an example, you know, a knife, you're going to use a knife a lot. I mean, it, if you don't carry a knife now, as soon as you put on a, a, a small uh, pocket knife, you start realizing all the different uses that you were missing out on. So a knife is a really good example of that. A flashlight's another one. A lot of people don't carry a flashlight with them, and then when you start carrying it, you realize that it had so many different uses where, you know, before it would have come in handy and you just never realized it. So those are two really good examples of of everyday items that you can carry on you that are going to have a purpose just in the regular tasks that you do. The other thing is that the gear that you carry should be small and it should be comfortable. You don't want big, bulky, or heavy items just kind of weighing you down. So when you're looking at these items from an instant survival perspective, it really dictates the type of equipment that you're going to be used because you want it to be ultra compact and easy to carry. So what I do is I always ask myself, what's the smallest equipment that I need for this task that's still going to do the job. Again, sticking with like a flashlight as an example, you know, you need a lot of light for different situations, but you don't want a big light. Well, fortunately, with the invention of LED lights, you can get a lot of power out of a very, very small light, and you won't even know that it's there. The other thing I'd say when it comes to your everyday carry gear is you want it to be easy to hide. When you think about it, Secret agents don't walk around with all their spy gizmos for all the bad guys to see. Well, the same thing goes with your everyday survival gear. You don't want to be walking around looking like you're more prepared than everyone else because this makes you a target for authorities, looters, or anyone who may want the stuff that you have. So your clothing comes into play a lot here. You want to have clothing with a lot of pockets that will help you essentially carry and, quote-unquote, hide your gear. Um, a really good, um, you know, there's even a company now that, that builds, like, you know, creates this clothing with extra pockets. Um, it's called Scotty Vest, and you can find more about them at, at scottyvestclothing.com. Uh, and they, they make this kind of, uh, it's, it's just perfect prepper clothing gear. Jeff, there's a lot of survival gear that someone would like to have on hand for an emergency, but it may be too big or bulky to carry on your person. You've labeled the second layer of survival gear as an external carry bag. Can you describe what you mean and what type of gear this might include? Yeah, basically, this is just an extra bag that you carry on you that's small. It's not like a giant backpack, but it can help you carry a little bit of extra gear that you wouldn't normally carry on yourself. You can almost consider it more like a purse or, you know, if you're a guy, a purse, the man purse you know, has become, you know, kind of popular. I mean, you're seeing more and more guys carrying satchels and things like that. And and this is, you know, this is really, uh, it's really good. In fact, you know, a lot of CCW, uh, you know, concealed carry uh, uh, guys before and, and women used to carry like those those hip pat pouches and things where they would keep a, a gun in there. Well, now you can carry even more gear with something that is, you know, less conspicuous 
that you know you see everybody carrying now. Well, so, unlike the fanny pack, I think we can say the man purse has been mainstreamed. I don't think the fanny pack ever gained acceptance. Yeah, no, and and, and thankfully it didn't. So, <laughs> but you know, first first want to look at the bag itself. You don't want it to be too military, and survivalists have a tendency to always like gravitate toward how's. How can I look the most tactical I possibly can? Well, that's kind of the, the opposite way of thinking. You don't want to stand out. So you don't want it to look military if you can avoid it. And you don't want it to be really, really big either because you don't really want to load yourself down. Just because you have extra space to carry stuff doesn't mean you want to throw the kitchen sink in there. So you don't have to get really big and you don't have to get really heavy with it. Uh, the other thing with the bag itself is that... Um, and, and why you don't want it to be heavy is that if it's a if it's a single if it's a single sling satchel, so it goes around like basically over one shoulder and hangs off the opposite side of your body. If it's really heavy over time, it's going to really I know this from experience. It's going to really weigh down that shoulder and it's going to start to hurt. So you're not really distributing the weight a lot. Um, but let's talk about the gear that you would actually put in it. You know, a lot of the gear that I have in in my in my MERS is for escape and evasion because you, know, you might have the instance where you need to get away from a flash mob riot or looters that um, you know just kind of spring up in an area that you might be in. You never know when it's going to be. So a lot of the extra gear that I carry isn't something that I would necessarily have on my body, but I can carry it in in the MERS or what we call it is the, is the scram bag for social chaos. Um, so what you want to do is you want to think the next level up from your everyday carry with this. So it's the things that might be too bulky to wear on your body, but would be good for a, a nice to have for escape and evasion. An example of that is um, our goggle. Uh, we always say like um, swimming goggles. Swimming goggles are very they're very small, they're very lightweight, they're very compact, um, but they can be very useful and not just for things like you know. Uh, Dealing with tear gas, which you know is going to sting your eyes, so it'll create like an airtight seal around your eyes that'll help to keep them from watering, so that you can see during the chaos. But also, even if there's a fire, you, know, you think if you're uh, if you're caught in a building that has a fire or something, again, if you can't see where you're going, you're going to be flailing around. You know, so part of it is you want to be able to see, and goggles can help with escaping even from fire. So that's one good example of of something that you might put into into your uh, your scram bag or your MERS to be able to help survive. The other things that you might want to consider putting in there are things for short-term survival. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's not going to be a bug-out bag that's going to carry you for three days, but it might be extra equipment that you need to be able to get you to a safe location over a single day. So it might be extra meal replacement bars that you can, you know, keep your strength up while you're on the on the run to a safe location or it might be a you know more of a trauma medical kit that uh you know so you can attend to multiple injuries so it might be like you know like quick clot bandages or something like that you can carry a few extra in there i mean because if you you know one might help you but if you're in an accident with your family or something like that and you have multiple wounds then you ha you're able to carry a few extra trauma medical items that would be help, helpful to you. Jeff, what you describe as the third layer of survival gear is the one that most preppers focus on, and that's the bug-out bag. What are the biggest mistakes you see most survivalists make in this category? 
the first big mistake that everybody makes in this in the bug out bag category is the bag itself. So a lot of survivalists tend to gravitate toward military style bags. They like feeling like they're in the military. They like feeling that they're tactically prepared for any sort of disaster. And that's actually the opposite way of thinking. You don't want to stand out as a target. So if if people were to look over a crowd, or let's just say the wolves start to look over the crowd and they're looking for the sheep or they're looking for easy victims or they're looking for somebody that has something that they want. Um, if they if they're looking across there and they see somebody with a, a you know wearing tactical clothing and wearing a tactical bag, then that to them equals okay, this is somebody that I can target for ambush because they have gear that I want. And that's always you know one of the thing, one of the big jokes uh, among my friends is that is that you know I don't need to carry survival gear because you do. So I'm just going to come over, kill you, and take yours. And and so you really don't want to stand out with the bag itself. Um, when it comes to when it comes to packing gear, what a lot of people don't understand is that what you pack, you also have to carry. So I have seen people just pack gigantic bug out bags full with tons of really really cool gear and then but then they never ever put it on i mean if they if you know a lot of people that if, unless you've actually bugged out they've never put it on to just see how heavy it is and sometimes you know when they put it on they'll feel okay yeah it's got some weight to it but then you have to take and walk with it so you know i recommend people take it and walk for you know, a mile, and then two miles, and then five miles, and then ten miles, so that they really get an idea of, wow, this thing's really heavy, and maybe I should pull some of this stuff out of it. So, you know, it's it really helps to to think light when it comes to this as well. Um, the other thing that really people don't don't really get, and uh, I get this because I was in the military and I've learned it the hard way, but it's the securing of gear. So you don't you want to strap down your gear as much as possible so it's not flailing around. And one of the reasons for that, besides weight distribution, is that is, is noise discipline. And what I used to find was, you know, when we had the Alice packs in the military. Um, you know, sometimes like every time my left foot stepped, I would hear a squeak, and it was just the it was the rucksack. Uh, rubbing against the metal frame of the Alice pack. So you never know what might be giving off noise until you actually start working with stuff. And when it comes to that, you don't want to you don't want anything that's going to draw attention to you. So it's not even like you're trying to be um you know secretly uh um kind of crawling through the woods and don't want to don't want to create any noise. It's just that as you're walking, if you're squeaking also or if you're making a lot of noise, it just naturally subconsciously brings people's attention to you and you don't want any attention at all if you're if you're bugging out and and you have your gear on. You want to lay as low as possible. Okay, everyone, hopefully you've been taking notes and planning any necessary additions or changes that you need to your current plan for survival gear build out. There's a lot more of the interview to come, including vehicle preparedness, thinking outside the home, and we're even going to get into personal defense options for survival. But first, if you're enjoying this broadcast, here's a special message where you can get even more survival gear information. In any disaster, crisis, or attack, your life and the life of those you love 
could solely rest on the survival gear you've acquired. Do you have the proper gear to protect you from the threats you'll face? Whether it's preparing your home against the destruction and mayhem of a city in chaos, or you're bugging out to a safer location when a natural disaster forces you from your home, the supplies you have right now could ensure your survival or seal your fate. Don't take the risk. Claim your free copy of our exclusive guide, Survival Gear Secrets, at survivalgearsecrets.com and discover the seven-phase survival gear plan every family must prepare for or face the consequences. Five no-bullshit warning signs that a collapse is headed your way, so you're already in action long before your neighbors even know what hit them. And how to know exactly when it's safer to stay at home and shelter in place. Or get in the family bug out mobile and get the hell out of Dodge. Your fellow citizens may be fine with sleeping in a crowded stadium waiting for FEMA to hand them a granola bar, juice box, and a blankie. But you know that no one can protect your family better than you can. If you're properly prepared with the right supplies and equipment to ensure your survival. Don't wait until it's too late. Find out what's missing from your survival gear plan by grabbing your free copy of Survival Gear Secrets now at www.survivalgearsecrets.com. And now, back to our show. Okay, we're back with my interview with our broadcast director, Buck, as we dig deeper into how to layer your survival gear to create a holistic plan for surviving any crisis or disaster. Let's go ahead and jump right back into the interview now. Jeff, a lot of survivalists recognize the importance of having a vehicle ready for a possible evacuation during a disaster, but you actually consider a vehicle another layer of survival gear. What's the best way to prepare your vehicle uh, for a crisis from a gear standpoint? Yeah, really I look at the vehicle as a large storage locker for survival gear. Some of that has to do with the vehicle itself, and some of it has to do with equipment that you might just need for survival. So so one thing I do is I tell people to to keep your bug-out bag in your car. So think of it like a survival storage locker. You know, when a lot of people have their bug-out bags, and they're, they're in their response room, or they're in their basement, they're in their garage, at the ready, ready to go. But when you think about it, you may never get to your home. You know, you may you, there there could be some event or some disaster where the equipment that you have at home is no longer an option for you to be able to survive. By having your bug out bag in your car, even if you never make it home, you have an extra you have the extra layer of survival gear that can help you get to a safe location. Particularly in an event where you, you you're not even you don't even have the option of getting home, you're going to need that survival gear. So that's why I recommend people actually keep their bug out bag. The other thing is that you want items in your car that can help you with everyday tasks. A good example of that are things like bungee cords that can be used for you know, lashing down equipment on your car for everyday use, but can also be used for setting up uh, shelters and securing gear and other things during a survival scenario. A fire extinguisher is another really good example uh, during times of of, of social chaos, you might need a fire extinguisher just for survival, or there, you could even come upon an accident where you might need a fire extinguisher. It could even be an accident with your car where you need a fire extinguisher. Nowadays, they make them in little handheld cans that make it, you know, really easy to carry them. A couple other items that you can that would be good for survival and for uh, just for everyday last uh, everyday tasks are like a can of Fix-a-Flat. 
the last thing you want as you're you're bugging out with your vehicle is to get a flat tire and nothing to you know no mechanic around to take care of it. So fix a flat can help you get to another location. The other thing are consumables like oil. So having an extra quart or two of oil so that you don't blow your engine on the run as well. And then the other thing I would say for gear for your vehicle are items for longer term bug out survival. So again, if you're if you're on the run and you don't have all the equipment that you have at your home, but you're going, it looks like you're going to be living out of your car. You want things that will help you subsist for a longer period of time. Some examples of that would be a siphon to be able to get gas from abandoned vehicles or just you know other vehicles along the way. So that you know if if um, if gas stations no longer have the ability, either power wise or supply wise, to supply gas anymore. So you want to you want to have a siphon with you, uh, being able to carry a larger tent in your car. So for you and your family, that's more of like a comfort item. You might be able to you know just be able to better shelter yourselves with a, a somewhat larger tent. And the other thing it has to do with just your basic supplies for living, which are like extra having extra food in there. So having some dry goods, just keeping some extra stores of food in your vehicle so that you don't necessarily have to rely on the, all the stored food that you have at your home that you may never get to. So having some extra dry goods or maybe some freeze-dried meals, things like that, along with um, a little bit better cooking utensils that you'd be able to cook some stuff in, like some pots and or sterno, things like that, are going to be helpful. Jeff, there's been a lot of momentum built up lately in even average people beginning to take preparing their home for a disaster, uh, probably due to the increase in natural disasters we've seen and the effects they have on a loss of power, food supply, water, and other things society takes for granted. What do you feel are the most important considerations people need to keep in mind when equipping their home for a survive-in-place scenario? You know, in a, in a survive-in-place scenario, you're really looking at longer-term survival. You're going to be there for a while. And so the main things to think about are what do you need to live through the short-term crisis or for, or for even a longer-term crisis. So really what you're looking at are your essentials, and food being one of those. I mean, even, even FEMA has started to realize the error of its ways in recommendations that it's had in the past based upon the mistakes that FEMA has made and the realities of an actual of an actual disaster based upon a lot of the natural the natural disasters have that have come up lately. So, you know, they used to say have 3 days of food on hand. Now they're saying 2 weeks. So, they've realized that it's not likely that they're going to get food to people as quickly as possible. Most people don't realize that they just don't have a lot of food in the house. So, the first thing I would say is to be able to start stocking up on dry goods for longer-term subsistence. And uh, you know, there's lots of progr- there's lots of you know information out there. The main thing is like, what do you want to stock up on? You know, things like that. So uh, you want to, you know, that that's a whole other topic in and of itself. But stocking away food is something that you really need to start looking at. The other thing is water. I mean, just along with food, you need water to live. And what that means is that you want to have some some means of purifying a larger amount of water. So you're going to have some water available in some hidden sources around your home, but what you want to do is you want to have something that, besides like a survival straw, you want some device that will be able to purify water on a larger scale. And you can find those pretty easily now. They're very you know small systems. You essentially just pour the water into the top, 
it goes through like a ceramic filter and comes out a, a spigot, and and you can just keep filling it up and filling it up and filling it up, and it, it that's that's what we carry. And then the other thing is power for your home to be able to light it up, um, be able to see. And people don't, you know, they think, well, I have flashlights. <clears throat> Excuse me, I have candles. I have candles. I have things like that. Um, but all of those can, you know, batteries are going to die, candles are going to burn out, and then what are you left with? So what we've done is uh, I've got a bunch of the solar walkway lights that you use for landscaping. So they give up their LED, they give off uh, quite a bit of light, and they have their own power source. You just put them out during the day, and at night you have the ability to have light. Now, the other thing I would say with this that people don't consider is to also have on hand some some dark tarps, just the uh, the kind that you can get them at a landscaping place, but the very, very dark tarps that you can put up on your windows at night. Because while everybody else's lights are out, you don't want to be the house with light, you know, where people can see light coming out. It's just a, it's like moths to the flame. It's a beacon for this is somebody that's got it all together. I'm going to go knock on that door because they probably have, they probably have food as well. Even worse, they're not going to knock on the door. They're going to, you know, looters might actually just break down your door and raid your supplies. So that's another, that's another thing that a lot of people don't think about when it comes to fortifying their home for longer term survival. Jeff, of the seven layers of survival gear you talk about, the sixth one seems to be the one that the fewest people ever take advantage of, and that's the survival community. We know that a survival community is important because for long-term survival, it helps to have access to various skill sets from like-minded community members that can help the group as a whole. Uh, when it comes to gear, though, what are some of the things the community needs to consider to be well-equipped? What you need to think about in terms of gear are like skill-specific acquisitions. So here's what I mean by that. Uh, a good a good example of somebody that you want in your survival community is somebody with some some medical skills that can take care of any injuries that you may have. Should you know your your traditional you know hospitals and doctors not be available to you? So you might have, you know, best case scenario, you have a doctor who is also survival-minded that you can network with and is going to be there and, he's, and he or she is skilled and trained. Um, that may or may not be an option. A lot of people don't even know doctors. But you might have a friend who's, who is a nurse or their spouse is a nurse. And that's somebody with advanced medical knowledge but doesn't have access to equipment like a doctor does. So, you know, a doctor might have access to his practice's equipment to be able to, to use during an emergency, while as a nurse is probably not going to have access to that equipment. So as a community, you might look at going up the next level from, like, most, most people think in terms of, like, a first aid kit, but for the community, you might think of more of, like, a trauma kit. You know, everybody purchasing a, a larger medical kit that would include things like, you know, uh, equipment for, for sutures, uh, maybe an AED for, um, for you know, for, for resuscitation, um, items that you normally wouldn't find in a, a regular home's first aid kit, but that would be helpful to the entire community. Another person that you would want to have in your community is somebody with some carpentry skills. I personally have zero carpentry skills. I can barely nail a nail into a board. So having somebody that can help you to, you know, fortify your home if a if a, a storm is coming, uh, 
things like that. So then it comes down to what equipment are they going to need to be help to be able to help everybody in the community, um, you know, secure their home. So you're going to need plywood on hand, as an example. Plywood's not very expensive. You can keep it in the garage, you know, on the top of the garage or wherever, in a shed somewhere, and then you can just break it out and you can you can use it for fortifying the home. Um, something else that would make it more efficient, more expedient, is something like a nail gun. So a lot of people might be good at carpentry, um, but how do you make it so that they can get around to an entire community very quickly and help everybody when you don't have a lot of a lot of notice or a lot of time to prepare? So something like a nail gun would help would be a help to the community to help get to everybody. Uh, another person that is a good somebody that would be part of a you know a good part of a survival community is like an auto mechanic. I again, <laughs> I'm not very good with vehicles. You know, I could change the oil. But uh, but that's about it. So when your car goes down, your transportation goes down, you need somebody with some some knowledge about how to fix a car so that you can you can stay mobile. So from that perspective, having uh, tools on hand is an is an obvious one, and you don't need a lot of you know tools and you know some soccer wrenches things like that are all somebody might need to really to really take care of a vehicle. However. You also want to look at what simple spare parts can you have for your vehicle. Now, what I mean by that is, you know, not like you need to keep an extra transmission in your garage, but it's more of the consumables. Like, do you have oil available? Do you have spark plugs available? And the way to consider these is the way that you do when you're stocking up on food. So one of the ways to stock up on food without investing a lot of money all at once is when you go to the store and you buy some canned goods, buy an extra can. Uh, that you that you don't need that you can take that extra can and put it away into storage while you're using the other ones that you just bought. Well, the same thing goes when you go and you buy spark plugs at the auto parts store. Buy an extra set of spark plugs just at one time, and then put that away. Uh, when you go to buy oil, buy an extra couple of quarts and put that away. So you know, just having those those things there makes a big difference, and that's the main thing is that you need an action plan now in place because when a disaster hits, that's not time to go out and try and buy spark plugs and oil and plywood and things like that because they're going to be gone. So you need to have the action plan in place now and get all of your gear together. Jeff, the final layer of survival gear you show in your seven layers of survival gear diagram isn't actually a concentric layer at all but rather permeates all of the layers, and that's personal defense weapons. This is an area that's near and dear to the heart of many survivalists, and we discuss this a lot. Aside from personal preferences for types of specific weapons, what special considerations do you think most preppers overlook when it comes to gear choices, uh, when it comes to survival scenarios? Yeah, the, the personal defense weapons really does permeate each layer because different weapons have different purposes depending upon what survival scenario that you're actually in. The best way to look at it is to think of it in layers in and of themselves. Like how do personal defense weapons affect each layer within the seven layers of survival gear or the other six layers of survival gear actually. So the way I look at it is you always start with the epicenter which is your everyday carry. So again, you might not you might have an AR-15 at home, but you may never make it home in a disaster. So what do you have on you for your everyday carry that you can use as a weapon? Now, that may mean a firearm if you're in a state where it allows concealed carry. But if it's not, what do you have as far as a weapon? You know, a, a tiny little pocket knife 
isn't necessarily a great weapon. So what do you have that you can carry that will help you to protect yourself? And the way I look at this is really like, how do you protect yourself to the next layer? So the the weapons that you have on you for everyday carry might help you get to, you know, fight your way to your car. Let's say it's a riot or something like that. You might be able to fight your way to your car where you have like a larger handgun or something with larger capacity for a handgun or even a legal rifle that you might possibly carry, something cheap in your trunk or something like that. Whatever is legal for, for where you're at, what can you fight to that's going to give you more a better ability to protect yourself? And then once you get to your car, you know, if you're going to your home, what do you have at your home to be able to protect against something like a home invasion. So it might be like a home invasion or a home defense shotgun that you have to better be able to protect your home. And then you look at the next layer, which is outside of your home or the community. What do you have that's going to protect you longer range? Because a shotgun doesn't have that accuracy in the longer range that maybe a, a rifle, like an assault rifle, might have. So when you think about all the layers of survival gear that you have, what, per, what specific personal defense weapon best, best protects you in that layer? And then that's the, the way to look at how you layer your, your choices. The other thing comes down to the ammunition that you have for each one of these things. So the other thing is you want to be look at common ammo among your survival community members. So, you know, this is another example of how personal defense affects all of these different layers. Does everybody in your community share the same common ammo so that if you need to help each other out with resupply, that you don't have a discrepancy between the type of ammo that you're all carrying? So everybody, and the other thing is that you want to look at a common ammo that was going to be available after a crisis. So there are very common rounds out there that are going to go very quickly. But when you think about in terms of resupply, the NATO standard for handguns is 9mm. NATO standard for rifles is going to be 5.56mm. So that's uh, that should dictate also what you use for your personal defense weapon because that's going to be the best resupply opportunity that you're going to have in the way of caliber. And then one of the other areas that people, that survivalists don't think about in terms of especially long-term survival is the is just basically the functionality of their weapons. You know, a, a broken a broken firearm is, you know, it's the only use it's going to give you is if you throw it at the enemy. So a lot of people don't think in terms of what they need to keep their, their gun functional. Now, part of that is with keeping your gun clean, so you need a good cleaning kit. But the other part of it is having spare parts on hand. And you can buy entire spare parts packs from firearms accessories. So you can you can have like a whole packet of, of extra parts for your handgun, just like a car. Um, but you can also look at the high wear items that you might have. Okay, so... Um, you look at like firing pins, extractors, recoil springs, things like that that are going to take a beating a little bit more, especially in the environment of a survival scenario where it's like there might be harsh, harsh environment, uh, sand, dirt, m- uh, mud, um, you know, excessive moisture, things like that. So having spare parts on hand is something that everybody should consider when it comes to their their firearms. 
Jeff, we want to thank you for taking the time to inform our listeners today. Obviously, there are different layers of survival gear, the first of which is being able to protect yourself. Uh, and for those listeners who are looking for more information on how to do that, we invite them to check out the program available at www.covertsurvivalist.com. Uh, the information there ought to be extremely useful in exploring that first layer of survival and eventually other layers as well. And now, until our next Modern Combat and Survival broadcast, train hard, stay safe, prepare now. This has been Modern Combat and Survival. Survival. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Modern Combat and Survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival.